So how would you best describe this book, A Fine Line, How Most American Kids Are Kept Out of the Best Public Schools? This book is about the laws and the policies that assign kids to uh, schools, to public school, based on their residential address. And it's something that I think most people just accept as a given. It's been such a part of the fabric of American life for so long that we just take it as a given. And my book is about the problems that causes um, the, the, obviously a social justice angle in the sense that uh, many um, many middle class and lower income folks are are excluded from the best public schools in a given city or a given district. But um, really, there are all sorts of distortions that I think it inflicts on American life, that those policies inflict on American life. And so my, my book is about those policies and how they affect us. And it's about um, how, how the, can, we, can we reconcile those policies with some of the principles of our democracy, um, like equal protection, like the idea that public schools are the great equalizer like the idea that public schools should be quote unquote open to all, uh, which many of the state constitutions promise. So, so that's really um, what we're trying to look at. With the book. Well, you've been involved in education for about 20 years, right? Yeah, yeah. It's something I felt strongly about for a long time. Um, I um, um, have always found myself drawn to kids. And so, you know, have, you know, just, I have a very empathetic feeling for children for a variety of personal reasons. And um, when I was in high school, we had a service program where we had to go out into the community for two weeks. We'd stop studies and, and go out into the community. And I volunteered in a public elementary school in urban Milwaukee. And it was just a, a disturbing place to be. Um, it was... Um, I, I volunteered in a number of different classrooms, and, and you could see that the second graders, for example, weren't all that different than second graders in the middle class suburb where I grew up. They, you know, they were they were different races. Um, they were probably lower income. They were urban rather than suburban, so they had some differences. But you could tell that they were still kids, you know, and they still had the full potential of of any other second grader right every any other seven or eight year old but then when you'd go to the sixth grade classrooms um it was quite a different experience and the kids were troubled they were way behind academically um there was one kid in particular who was just he wasn't he wasn't clean every day and he was um was disruptive in class. The teachers in those sixth grade classrooms were uh, very disillusioned and um, uh, not as engaged as you would want a teacher to be in a, in a, in a classroom of lower income sixth graders, right, on the brink of, of, of middle school, on the brink of high school. And, and, you know, you would want those middle school teachers to be really believing in those kids and, and sending them that kind of message. And that's not what I saw. And so it was something I felt very passionately about. And so, um, as you know, I've done some creative things uh, over 
the last, you know, in my adult life, um, I've done some work in the business world, but have never really stopped being engaged um, with public education and public education reform. And and um, and so have worked with a lot of different nonprofits, often sometimes as a volunteer. You know, I've volunteered at some inner city schools here in L.A., um, but also um, helping nonprofits that are active in education reform with their strategy about how they're trying to make an impact on schools and then on kids' lives. How did you get involved with uh, Gloria Romero? She was, um, she used to be the majority leader of the California Senate. Yep, that's right. And, and so she, Gloria wrote the afterword of my book. Um, she's become a very good friend. Um, she, so I was hired um, back in, I think it was 2013 I first met Gloria. She um, had just left the Senate and she was the head of the LA chapter of Democrats for Education Reform. And they were trying to figure out, she was trying to figure out how she was going to, what her life post legislature was going to look like. And she was out in the midst of giving a bunch of speeches about how your zip code should not determine your educational destiny. Um, and so we met for coffee in El Sereno and at the Starbucks there, I still remember it very well. Um, and, uh, she was telling me about her speeches and we were kind of brainstorming and, and, and there were a couple lawsuits going through the courts at that time around about the schools. And, and so there were, I sort of had the legal angle on my brain and, and I, I asked her, you know, I know, you know, I lived in Silver Lake for many years, right? Ivanhoe is a very sought after school in Silver Lake. And it, it really matters where, whether you live on one side of the line or the other in terms of whether you get to go to Ivanhoe or not. And it matters in, in how much the, your house is worth, right? So the equivalent house on one side of the line or the other might be worth $200,000 more. And so, you know, if you're a middle income family, you're really struggling to afford a house in that Ivanhoe zone, um, you know, because most of the folks who go there are more affluent. So in the context of that, I just asked Gloria, well, I don't really get it, right? Like, how does Ivanhoe, like, what le- what's the legal basis for them keeping kids out of that school if they live within walking distance of Ivanhoe um, and live within the borders of the LA Unified School District? So so anybody who lives in, in you know, in Silver Lake is, is paying for... Um, for Ivanhoe, both via their income taxes that go to the state that end up funding that school, but also via property taxes and school bonds, which, which um, you know, go go to Ivanhoe. Um, and so there, so I just started wondering. It just seems like somebody who lives in in Silver Lake, who lives within walking distance of Ivanhoe, should have an equal opportunity to enroll there. And how, what is the legal basis for that school saying no? Sorry, you can't. You're not allowed. We only take people from within this this these lines. So that was the that was the central kind of curiosity that I had that led me to start researching this issue and sort of led to surprise after surprise after surprise. And and it started out just as a as a passion project and a curiosity thing. But but as the surprises kept coming, I, at a certain point, I was like, well, this is an untold story. This is an untold story, and I I, I want. I think there's a lot of stuff here that nobody's aware of. And even me, I'd been working in education reform for a long time. I I didn't know about any of this stuff. And so um, I wanted to 
tell that story. And so this book is that story. Well, it's going to be released on May 17th, and that's actually the 66th anniversary, right, of board, uh, Brown versus Board of Education ruling? It is. It is. Yep. Um, yeah, I, I really, you know, that's the central insight, right? You know, um, Brown v. Board of Ed was, um, uh, you know, the famous um, case that ruled, de- uh, ruled segregation unconstitutional um, and um, overturning Plessy v. v. Ferguson. And, and that was in the, in the 50s. And it was the case of this little girl, this African-American girl who, who was, was uh, you know, there was a school um within walking distance of her house but she wasn't allowed to go there because she was african-american and so they filed suit and um she 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 was the the court said no you can't you can't exclude people on the basis of race and so we're really making an analogous argument that that schools should not be allowed to use geography especially within a district right the 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 legislature has drawn these district lines to say these are the folks who share schools right um and and you know i could i could make an argument and i do in the book that maybe you should get rid of district lines as well but i think the stronger argument is just to say hey you know the 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 state has drawn a line a line around these folks these folks share schools and so you know everybody who are with lives within the boundaries of that district deserves an equal opportunity to get into the best schools within that district. Yeah, it's, it's interesting because um, it really seems, I mean, they're on the surface, they're public schools, but they really yep. don't seem like that because they're really not open to the general public. Yeah, it's true. And, and, and it, it's even worse than, than I thought. I mean, you know, those schools really operate as as semi-private entities. You know, if you go in Mount, to Mount Washington in, in in my neighborhood, if you go to Mount Washington Elementary, the I'm I'm a I'm I'm a, a constituent of the district. I'm a resident of the district, but you know, and I live in the neighborhood. In fact, it's our closest school. But it, you know, I but the line falls it falls just outside of that line, and so. You know, if I go up to the principal at that school, even though it's the closest school to my house, um, me and my daughter and my son and my wife, we are not the constituents for that principal, right? That principal does not think that she is beholden to us at all. And, and so, and for, you know, for my family, you know, we're not wealthy by any means, but we can, you know, we have the ability to afford, you know, some private schools we we've got the savvy to negotiate some of these choice systems at la unified but for for single parents for lower income folks you know it's much much harder um you know it's a much bigger deal to be to be excluded from these schools and the other thing i'll say mark is we found three instances in this country um where there's an elite public school right next to a failing public school and what happens is these schools, these elite public schools get over-enrolled because uh, young families crowd into the zone in order to get access to that school so that they don't have to pay private school tuition. Then what happens is the the school can no longer serve everyone within the zone, right? The school doesn't have space. And so what you'd expect to happen, if this was truly a system in which all the schools were in the same system, you'd expect them to 
redraw those lines in response to population changes and redesignate um, where people go to schools to even things out. But what you find, we found three examples of schools where uh, they, they, there were hundreds of empty seats within walking distance of a given neighborhood but the people, the the politically powerful people who had bought these homes said, no, 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 you are not going to redesignate us to, a, you know, reassign us to another school that we don't want to go to. We paid $200,000 extra to go to this school. So what we're going to do is we're going to force the, the, the school district to invest $12 million or more, in some cases up to $19 million, to renovate the elite school, to make room in that elite school. And then does that elite school then accept people, right, who live on the other side of the line and, 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 you know, within walking distance of their school? No, they don't. They still only serve that, you know, the people who originally bought within those lines and the lines don't change. The lines become, become very calcified over time because these politically powerful parents will never let those lines change in most cases. It's, it gets very, very contentious to change the lines. Um, so you, what you see, and so the three examples are Mary Lynn Elementary in Atlanta, Lakewood Elementary in Dallas, and uh, Lincoln Elementary, a very, very elite school in, in uh, the, uh, that serves the Old Town neighborhood of Chicago, as well as uh, Lincoln Park. Yeah, you talked about that, uh, how uh, a mile away from Lincoln, there's another school that is an underperforming school. Tell me about the statistics, because uh, it's in your book about how these students, when they graduate and they get ready to go to high school, they, they're they illiterate. Yeah, yeah, it's a big, big problem. It, I, I knew there were discrepancies. I knew there were gaps. Until I started looking at these pairs of schools, I had no idea how stark the contrasts are. Um, of schools that are within the same neighborhood that serve the same neighborhood. So Lincoln and Meneer in Chicago is possibly the most egregious example in the book. And there are many egregious examples in the book, but Lincoln and Meneer is perhaps the most egregious example. Uh, at Lincoln Elementary, uh, 80 over 80% of the kids um, are proficient in reading. And at Meneer Elementary, um, in the last year they did testing in 2019, uh, 0% of the eighth graders tested proficient. And, you know, basically the Lincoln and Menear share an attendance zone boundary of North Avenue. So if you live north of North, north of North Avenue, you're assigned to go to Lincoln. Uh, if you live south of Menear Avenue, you're assigned to go to Menear. Now there are lots of middle-class parents of all races work desperate who live nor south of north avenue and who, who work desperately hard to find some other option whether it's a private school or a charter school or a magnet school to get their kids out of lincoln but there are still hundreds of kids who are in this school where you know your chances of reading at grade level by eighth grade are minuscule and and, and in 2019 they were zero percent nobody and and you can imagine you know that isn't that isn't just affecting their reading proficiency at eighth grade, right? If, if they aren't proficient in reading at eighth grade, they're not prepared for high school, right? And if they aren't prepared for high school, if they're not going to be successful in high school, then how the heck are they going to be prepared for college? Um, 
And, you know, I don't want I don't want to claim that that if you reassigned those kids to Lincoln Elementary, that suddenly um, they would magically um, start performing at the same level as as most of the kids in Lincoln. You know, there is some selection going on and the people who, who are assigned to Meneer currently and the people the people who end up at Meneer, you know, based on my interviews with some some folks who live in the neighborhood, a local pastor, you know, those are troubled people. Um, many of them are on welfare. They live in public housing. There are many, many problems. But it does, you know, it, it is not helping anyone for all of those troubled um, families to be clustered in one school. And if you look, you know, the, the, what I, the, the example I love is that if you look at health clinics in the Old Town neighborhood of Chicago, you can look at two clinics, one that's on the north side of North Avenue and one that's on the south side. So one is sort of comparable to Lincoln and one is sort of comparable to Meneer. They're, they're about the same distance apart. Um, those health clinics, if you look at their ratings on Google, they're very, very similar, right? And sure, there's probably a little difference in the makeup of the populations that goes to those two health clinics. But the fact is, is that because the health clinics can't exclude people solely based on where they live, there's a mixing of the populations and the level of service is higher for everyone. Um, and so I don't think that we are serving our, our low income disadvantaged kids very well by drawing these lines. Um, and I, I, frankly, I don't think we're serving any well. I, I don't, I don't think we're really serving those, those Lincoln elementary families very well. You know, I talked to one parent who said, well, we found, we found a, a townhome that we loved or a house that we loved south of North Avenue. And we thought about it, but then we found a different home that we liked less, but that cost $250,000 more. But we thought, well, we can't afford private school. And, and, and so we might as well pay the $250,000 extra. So they overpaid for their house um, in order to get access to that school. And it creates these social divisions. It's just, it's, it's warping our society in ways that I don't think we've been willing to admit to ourselves. And, and I'm hoping my book can kind of uh, force people to, to confront the ugly, ugliness of it. Within the last, uh, I don't know, last year, there was the big um, scam with uh, colleges where actors and attorneys and billionaires were paying to get their children into these elite colleges. And, and in some ways, this kind of screams of the same thing as that. It, it does. And, and Gloria has pointed out, um, you know, these 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 people who, who did these 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 enrollment frauds have really gotten off at, at, at the college level at, for these elite colleges have got have gotten off with slaps on the wrist. But there are many, many examples in this country of low income racial minorities, African-American or Hispanic uh, families lying about their address to get access to a good public school. Right. And the, the local authorities throwing the book at them, right? And putting them in jail, right? For, for trying to access a quote unquote public school. Um, and, and, and it really, it's very painful. And, and, I, and I will say that people up and down the, the economic spectrum lie about their address in America in order to get into schools. I talked to a, a, a a woman who grew up in, or who, who raised her family in Malibu, right? Uh, uh, upper income person. 
um, quite wealthy who wanted to get her daughter, um, who is one of my friends, wanted to get her daughter into Santa Monica High School. And so she paid a friend for her utility bill, her for her gas bill, and, and put her name on the gas bill, took the gas bill, and got her kid enrolled at Santa Monica High School, right? And I know people in the dead center of the middle class who've done it. I know wealthier people who've done it. I know lower income people who've done it. It is a very, very common thing in, in America. The only people who get put in jail, right, are the lower income people who are usually um, um, not the right color, right? It's not, it's just, it's not a good look for our country. It's not a good look for our, our public school system, which is, which is meant you know, the, the original goal was for it to be the great equalizer, right? That, that we have this free market system in which the, the, the government lets us, uh, you know, leaves us to our own devices and kind of lets things sort out. And, and, and I'm, I'm actually a big fan of that in theory. Um, but in order for that to work, um, we do need public education, which where in, in which low-income kids can get access to the tools and the knowledge and the skills that they need to compete in the economic marketplace. And when we have such stark divisions in terms of who gets access to the best schools, it, it undermines the social compact that's necessary for the democracy and for our economy to work um, uh, to work in a way that I think um, you know, is consistent with that ideal. If you have children that can't read and they, they just kind of fall through the cracks, the economic impact in the future where these, uh, these people are going to grow up, they are going to become a burden on the system. They're not going to be able to contribute without solid uh, skill sets. Yep. Yeah, and, and Gloria talks about the school-to-prison pipeline, right? where we we put the kids in these schools that have been failing for decades right and and you know folks who disagree with me will say well we need to make all schools better and why are you talking about you know getting them into these elite schools we need to make their schools better and i would agree with that but we have tried everything to make those schools better right and it's been literally decades there have been there are schools that are failing that were failing decades ago that are failing now they have more money now um you know there are different theories about how to change things like more school choice more money um technology different you know different academic philosophies uh curriculums curricula the issue is that Education has gone through so many phases over the past few decades, and those schools continue to fail. And, and I would argue, you know, if you pack kids into schools um, where they have no other option um, and where they're only with other people um, who are struggling, that, that that's just not good for them. And it, it, it does create this, this school-to-prison pipeline where they, you know, they people consider the kids a job jobs program, right? The, you know, we can't, you know, we, we got to keep all the kids in the public schools um, because we don't want to let go of teachers. I, I understand that. But then, you know, they, then they go into the prison and the prison guards say, well, we got to keep the prisons full so that we have prison guard jobs. And that, you know, people are not, you know, we don't keep people in institutions in order to, um, 
in order to give other people's jobs, other people jobs. That's 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 not how a free society should work. Talk to me. Uh, you mentioned it kind of earlier, but I want to go back over this notion of redlining um, because it dates back years, and then it's kind of it kind of applies to uh, the educational system where it's uh, not really called redlining, it's called attendance lines. Yeah, so, so redlining was a practice in the, in the 1930s. Um, there were big housing programs created during the New Deal. And the federal government, uh, an agency of the federal government, needed to determine who was eligible for this assistance and who wasn't. And they drew these maps, these infamous maps, in which... Um, certain areas of, of cities, in fact, if you look at the LA map, huge swaths of the city, like two thirds of the city are red and yellow, which are hazardous and declining, right? And those people living in those areas of any race, right, were not eligible for mortgages or housing assistance. And those areas tended to be the areas with higher concentrations of minorities and immigrants, right? But it, the, again, it's important to note the, the, the discrimination was not on the basis of race. So if you were a white person, right, a Caucasian person living in one of these areas, you also were denied housing assistance, right? Um, but, you know, at a global level, the, the bureaucrats who drew those maps saw a neighborhood that had a high concentration of minorities and immigrants. They saw that as a non-desirable area. And so let's not let's not give them housing assistance. And so, you know, this is well, one of the big surprises when I was writing the book is at some point I was you know, we were creating these maps of the attendance zones, kind of showing how these lines determine your fate. Uh, me and my designer. Um, Daniel Gonzalez, who's just a, a brilliant, brilliant graphic designer um, and artist. And at one point I said, well, let's let's try. Let, I wonder what would happen if we lined up these attended zones with the old redlining maps. Like what what story is that going to tell? And, and, you know, no surprise in some cases, not in all cases, but in some cases like Ivanhoe Elementary um, um, here in um, in Los Angeles at uh, PS8 Robert Fulton in Brooklyn, right? You can see that the attendance zone mirrors the shape of the desirable area on the redlining map, and the lines still exclude areas that have higher concentrations of minorities and immigrants. And and you know, really, even in cities where the you know it doesn't overlap exactly. The point is, is that it's still, the analogy still holds. We're still using uh, lines drawn on a map to determine who gets access to extremely valuable government services. And we're still often excluding middle-class and lower income families um, of, of all races. Um, uh, and, and I don't think that's, um, I don't, I think it's an ugly echo of our, of our nation's past. Plessy versus Ferguson was um, um, uh, the the case that said that as long as separate but equal was okay, right? So you could have you could have separate schools, you could have segregated schools, you could have white kids assigned to one school and black kids assigned to another school as long as they were quote unquote equal. Of course, they never were, and 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 obviously that that was just an ugly decision. And so Brown v. Board of Ed overturned Plessy. 
Brown very clearly outlawed overt racial segregation. And the route that the courts went is that they basically said, you know, you cannot uh, overtly uh, uh, sort kids into schools by race. Now, the problem with that is that they also said that if there's no overt segregation, then it's okay if the races kind of sort themselves um, um, into different schools. And so basically um, what's happened over time is that, you know, there are no more successful segregation lawsuits uh, because, you know, no district in its right mind would would officially, you know, cite race as the reason they're sending a kid, you know, kids to different schools They, you know, even if that is their intent, if they can if they can just keep those words out of their official testimony, if they can keep it out of the official documents, then it doesn't matter how much actual division, you know, racial divisions are in the schools. Um, the courts have said, OK, we're we're powerless to um, to do anything about these divisions uh, because there's no overt segregation. And I think it it leads to the courts being completely disengaged from access issues, which I don't think is healthy because in a system like we have where the government runs, you know, where these governmental entities run schools and they the, they are governed by politically elected representatives, there will always be pressure from politically powerful interest groups and constituents to try and reserve the best schools for those families, right? And and so to have the courts completely disengaged from those issues is, I think, very uh, problematic. Well, you talk in your book how how the laws actually promote this notion of uh, segregating our schools. Yep. Yep. Yeah. I was surprised. That was another big surprise is, you know, so my curiosity was, well, how, do, how does the school keep, you know, in, in, in California, how does a school keep out district students who live within walking distance of that school? And what I was surprised to find is that in California, it's the open enrollment law, which keeps those kids out. Now, this is a law that was meant to open up public schools to anyone in the district, right? That was the official stated goal of that law. The problem is, is it says that that any kid in a district has a right to attend any school within that district, but it includes the clause that they cannot displace a student zone to go to that school. That sounds on the surface like a perfectly reasonable accommodation, right? But with that clause, the 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 legislature requires districts to set up these geographic enrollment preferences. And what it does is it guarantees that the elite schools will remain exclusive to people who remain in that zone. It guarantees then that wealthier parents will start to buy homes in that zone, driving up the property prices. It guarantees then that many low income and middle class parents will not be able to afford homes in that zone and will be forced to go elsewhere. So all of the divisions of these these stark divisions between schools that are right next to each other, um, they sprout from that one exception. Now in different states, there are different, you know, the laws are different in different states. And in some states, there is actually a law that says 
you must divide your district into zones and assign kids based on geography. And that's and the legislature is very, very explicit. But in, in California, it is ironically the open enrollment law, which keeps these schools closed to most uh, district kids. You talked a little earlier about um, some of the things that people have done, you know, like lying about their zip codes. What are some of the other things that people will, will go through to get their student into uh, one of these elite public schools? And then also, tell me about what the schools do. Because I read in your book where they'll hire somebody to... Um, photograph like do a, a video surveillance on a student um yep. all these different techniques to prevent these kids from going to their schools yeah this is kind of an untold story so parents you know education's so important parents are going to do whatever they can to 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 get their kids into these schools so I talked to one woman, a Chinese immigrant. Well, she, she's the daughter of Chinese immigrants. And um, they were, you know, they got on the wrong side of Mao and moved to um, the Bay Area um, in the, I think, the 80s. And she, she was in Oakland Public Schools, and she came home from kindergarten one day and said, I'm bored. And her parents said, that is not acceptable. But they were not wealthy, right? They were, you know... Uh, working class immigrants. So what they did is they pooled their resources, all the aunts and uncles pooled their resources to buy one home in a wealthier district. And then they sent 15 cousins through that, those schools with this one address. And as they, as they kind of moved up the socioeconomic ladder, they were able to afford a couple other houses in this wealthier district, this higher performing district. And so they were trading addresses uh, within the districts, within the you know, to get access to the right zones, so that each kid could go to the school that was the best fit for them, right? It's it's really ingenious, and and I think some people would say, well, that's wrong. What I would say is, you know, I don't I I I don't think it's wrong, right? I think this is the system that has been jury rigged against um, middle class and lower income folks, and so I think you got to make it work. Um, and secondly, like, let's, let's, let's get rid of, let's get rid of it. Like we, we shouldn't, you know, we shouldn't have those lines that prevent access to the public schools. Um, and so, you know, even if you think it's wrong, let's, let's try to, let's try to get rid of these bad policies that encourage this kind of behavior. I'll also say that it is so common. I talked to a friend, I said, you know, I'm writing a book about these policies and he said, well, so what? And I said, well, people lie about their address. He said, so what? Every, everyone in New York is lying about their address. Well, if everyone in New York is lying about their address, then why in the world do we have these dumb policies, right? If people are going to get access to whatever school they want through some other means, why are we distorting real estate prices? Why are we boxing out people who aren't willing to lie about their address? You know, it, it just doesn't make a lot of sense. And what it does is it does create this system where, um, some schools and some districts crack down and they end up, you know, hiring private investigators to surveil kids. So we've got a quote in the book from a private investigator who takes on these kind of gigs. And he says, you know, 
you really have to use a telephoto lens and you should really have a woman investigator because when you've got somebody taking photos of kids early in the morning, it's, 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 it raises fewer eyebrows if, if it's a woman. And, you know, you may think, oh, well, they're breaking the, the, the law, right? You know, they're, they're cheating to get their kids in. But what I would say is the people who are being spied on are everybody, right? Every kid is being spied on, even if there's one kid who's lying about their address. And I don't think it's right that we have a system that for effective enforcement requires um, the spying on children. Right? I just don't I don't it doesn't it just doesn't feel right. Um, and I don't think this story has been told yet. I don't think it's reached public consciousness that this goes on um, at many, many elite schools. It really seems like institutionalized racism. I think in some senses, yes. And, and I, I'm reluctant, you know, in the in the in the book, you know, in many ways, these 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 systems are emergent. Right. So they're not the result of any one person who has, you know, holds racist views and 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 going out and, and um, you know, trying to exclude people of one race or another. That 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 isn't what's going on. But I do think that um there is a um there's a tendency among some folks to just want their kids to go to school with people who look like them and that i think that's up and down the economics spectrum that's probably people of all races to some degree but the problem is is that when you put these schools um in the hands of politicians and then the politicians are responding to powerful political interests the people who have political power are going to, you know, use that tendency, good or bad, of wanting to go to school with, you know, wanting their kids to go to school with people who look like them. It's it's going to look ugly in how what that you know what that looks like on the ground, whether there was racist intent to begin with or not. It's gonna the results are gonna look ugly. What surprised you most when you started to get into this uh, material based on? what you knew from your 20 years in education to now you're researching and you're uncovering certain things that you didn't know about what really what really surprised you or shocked you yeah i think i'll say two things number one was the stark contrast of some of these schools that serve the same neighborhood right and and how really living on one side or the other of a street can can matter a whole lot in what your educational destiny and therefore what your life destiny might be um, and then my, the second big surprise I found was that I stumbled upon this old civil rights law, the, the Equal Educational Opportunities Act, that was passed in 1974. And, um, you know, everybody's forgotten about this law, but that law has a clause in it that I think is quite powerful and, and that may impact some of these issues going forward. That law says that minority children cannot be assigned to a school that is not the closest to the residents if it will worsen segregation, right? And so if you look at these attendance zones, they tend to be misshapen things, right? They're, they're kind of amoeba looking things. And so if you look closely, they're in, in many, in all, almost all the cases, right? You'll look and you'll see pockets where people who live very, very close to an elite public school are zoned to go to a failing school down the road. And because the elite public schools are often uh, have much higher concentrations of white students, 
the district, when it sends one of those kids who lives close to the elite school, when it sends a minority kid to some other failing school, it is almost always worsening segregation by making that assignment. And so, you know, one of the things I'm highlighting in the book is that a lot of minority parents have the right to sue in federal court for access to these elite public schools. And I, I don't think they know it. In fact, I'm sure they don't know it. Um, I most no one I've talked to in the education reform movement uh, or community knew knows or knew about this law. And it's very, very straightforward. And, and, and the law does say, you know, neighborhood schools are OK. Um, but I think Congress knew well enough that if they just said neighborhood schools were OK, then the districts would play games with defining neighborhoods as you know, in order to please uh, uh, more powerful parents. So Congress very specifically defines the neighborhood school as the school closest to your residence. And so really, you've got an opening for civil rights legislation, uh, for civil rights lawsuits um, to get minority kids in some pockets into these schools. And I think the benefit of those laws, it won't benefit everybody um, um, in terms of access, but it will, uh, you know, a series of lawsuits based on that law could have a significant impact on raising the raising this issue to public consciousness and, and affecting the public conversation around whether these lines are just. The, the district bureaucrat who decides where your kid goes, you know, they don't know that your daughter loves to dance and that she has dyslexia, right? Or that your son has trouble regulating his emotions, but he's really good at math, right? Like you don't, they don't know that. And, and, and each kid is different, each family is different. And, you know, if you look at the statistics published by the uh, National Center for Education Statistics, over half of Americans just send their kid to the school where they live. And they don't, you know, some parents pick where they live based on the school. Some kids use public school choice. Some kids, some families choose schools, choose private schools or choose homeschooling. But, you know, over half of Americans don't pick their residence based on the school, but they still send their kid passively to whatever school they've been assigned to. And I, I, I don't think education's too important. I don't think that's uh, I think culturally we need to move away from that. We need to start thinking about, okay, kids are different. Let's find the right fit for, for each kid. Um, so I think that's part of it. I do think there are also problems in the, the school systems. Um, you know, it is hard to fire um, poor performing teachers. And, and there, you know, as I said, I have, I have my kid in a, in a LAUSD traditional public school, and she has a teacher who is astoundingly good, right? Astoundingly good off the charts. And so there's no sense to which I think you should blame all teachers for the problems of American education. But there is the problem that it is hard to fire teachers in, in, in these big public school systems. And when you have set up a system um, where it's hard to fire employees, then the people out in the world, right, who are um, perhaps lazy or incompetent or, you know, complacent, or maybe they're just troubled, they're going to start looking for jobs in that system because they know that once they're in, they can't be fired. And, I, you know, you get the, the, the phenomenon of the rubber rooms in New York where, where people, you know, they don't feel comfortable 
putting these people into classrooms, but they can't get them through the 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 um, the, the firing process. They can't they can't fire them because of the regulations. And so you've got you know you're paying all these teachers to sit in a room and not teach. Um, so that or you get the, the the problem of must place teachers, which has been a problem in, in LA Unified for for decades, where teachers um, who aren't performing or who aren't a good fit at their school um, are kind of kicked around the system and and they the district pushes them into schools um, because no one would hire that person because of their track record, but the district can't fire them. And so they get must placed into failing into, into schools where the principal doesn't want them and, and, and has an opening, but wants to hire someone who's more competent. That's not ideal. I think when there are budget cuts, they always cut, they don't cut based on who is doing well. They, they, by law and by the teachers union contract, they have to fire the, the youngest least tenured people first. And that, that leads to the, the, you know, you lose a lot of good teachers that way, right? You're losing people who might want to make a career and then they, you know, they get fired, they go look for something else. Are you going to be doing any book signings coming up? Yeah. So Vromans, our favorite indie bookstore, they were going to host our, our launch party um, before this pandemic hit. So they are hosting an event, an online virtual event uh, this coming Sunday, the 17th at 3 p.m. Uh and uh, I'm going to be doing that with Gloria Romero, who wrote the afterword to my book. She's the former majority leader of the California State Senate and, and, and a very passionate speaker on these issues of educational access. And that conversation is going to be facilitated by Jill Stewart. Uh, Jill is the famous columnist from Los Angeles, uh, many different venues and, and former managing editor of the LA Weekly. She actually edited my book, so she's very, very familiar with the work. And, and I, I anticipate a very lively conversation, both Gloria and Jill. I, I admire them both greatly. They are both uh, incredibly blunt and incredibly smart. So uh, it's going to be a compelling conversation. Center stage, center stage, center, center, center stage. Center stage. Hello, this is Homer Simpson. Whenever I want to know what's going on in the entertainment world, I listen to Center Stage with Mark Gordon. <laughs>